This episode of Fintech Business Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Navon, formerly known as TripActions. Navon is the end-to-end travel, expense, and corporate card solution. That's right, Navon goes way beyond being a global travel agency by offering full-stack corporate card issuing, payments, expense management, and spend reporting. Clients that have used Navon to simplify their travel and expense management include Lyft, Heineken, Okta, Toast, and many others. Learn more today at Navon.com. Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. I'm here today with Alan Meyer, the head of identity at Plaid. While listeners surely know Plaid, they may be less familiar with its identity offerings. Alan joined Plaid via its acquisition of his identity verification startup, Cognito, uh, where he was CEO. Alan, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to get us started, I'd love to hear a bit more of the backstory here. I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit that either I didn't know or maybe forgot that this acquisition happened amid all of the other like crazy news of fintech in the past, whatever, year, year and a half. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of Cognito uh, and also how the deal with Plaid came about? Awesome. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Uh, excited to be here. So I, I got into crypto in 2013, and <laughs> no good story ever starts if I got into crypto, <laughs> but uh, we're going we're gonna to give it a shot. So uh, so I got into crypto in 2013. I was enamored by Bitcoin, thought it was just the coolest thing since sliced bread. And um, at that point, I was at Stanford uh, with uh, a classmate of mine, John Backus, uh, who I ended up starting the company with. And... Um, you know, we we also befriended this professor called Balaji Srinivasan, uh, who ended up becoming the CTO of Coinbase. Uh, he's also well known on Twitter uh, if if you're sort of in those uh, in those spheres. And we started together this thing called the Stanford Bitcoin Group, uh, which was one of the first, uh, if not the first, higher education um, crypto research uh, group in a uni- in a university. And our first uh, sort of major project that John and I worked on together was the use of uh, remittances uh, in the cryptocurrency context. So how can we reduce the cost of, you know, sending money back home? Maybe you uh, were born in China, you moved to the US, you want to send money back home to support your parents, support your family, uh, what have you. The fees for that are horrific. They're uh, truly terrible. You know, you send $200, you're going to pay 20 to $40 in fees, uh, depending on the service that you use. So we thought, Cryptocurrency would be a great way to reduce that underlying cost. The summary here is that uh, in 2013, it did not reduce the cost. Almost all of the costs that these businesses were incurring, like Western Union, were a result of compliance costs, risk costs, uh, you know, actually having these trucks that were existing in, uh, you know, each of these different countries. And uh, it was not actually the cost of moving the money that was uh, driving up those fees. But as part of that project, uh, we had built a lot of compliance and anti-fraud tech to facilitate that use case. So we thought, you know, before we package, uh, you know, before we wrap up here, let's package this up uh, and give it a try and sell it to some people because, you know, maybe they had the exact same problems that we had uh, when we were trying to build this uh, essentially fintech app. So uh, we went to Reddit, uh, we went to r slash Bitcoin back in the day, uh, and we put up a post that was something, I think the headline was something like, you know, I want to help Bitcoin companies with KYC compliance. And at that time, in 2013, it was actually slightly, uh, well, it was very clear to people who were in finance, but in the cryptocurrency community, it was very unclear whether uh, KYC was actually a required process in cryptocurrency. People were debating that. They were like, well, it's not money, so do you actually have to do KYC? 
The answer is yes, <laughs> they did have to do KYC, but there was a little bit of debate at the time. So we were trying to uh, kind of be the uh, voice of reason in the community and, and get people on board uh, with cryptocurrency KYC. And uh, we were quite successful. We had a whole bunch of people like Coinbase sign up at that point in time. Obviously, Coinbase was tiny, tiny, um, but uh, that sort of gave us our start uh, in the space and uh, allowed us to, to grow the business beyond crypto from there. That is um, a very interesting like sequence of events. I mean, the the remittance one is definitely one you know I've I've studied both in like I guess call it like an academic business context as well as experiencing a lot personally as a as a immigrant or an expat myself. I mean, you know, I actually earn most of my money in dollars, but my business is denominated in euros. You know, I also run a small business in Mexico, so I'm earning in pesos. Uh, and yeah, I, I can tell you. Uh, particularly if you're still using like big banks, um, which uh, in the Mexico context is, is very common uh, just due to like the currency corridors and the volumes going in, in uh, each direction. Uh, the fees and the markups on Forex uh, are still pretty terrible. Um, they are, yeah. <laughs> and that's to be honest. And that's for me, somebody Ten who's years like, later. Quite, quite familiar with sort of like how, how uh, these businesses and how the mechanisms work. But um uh, unfortunately, there there are still you know not too many great solutions, particularly for uh, physical like cash in cash out. I mean, at, at one point I looked quite closely at like the El Salvador narrative around you know launching uh, Bitcoin as legal tender, and part of that story was around remittances and reducing uh, reducing the cost of doing them. And I think it's true to a certain extent, but then when you get to that you know physical dollar in, physical dollar out. Yep. Obviously, it generates a lot of friction. There's a lot of you know boots on the ground, so to speak, needed needed to do that. Um, but you know, ultimately, you're you're now at Plaid as the head of identity. Um, how how did you end up there? You know, how did you end up uh, selling or being acquired by um, you know arguably one of the most important or influential you know fintech infrastructure uh, companies <laughs> in the U.S. at least. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously we knew about Plaid for a long time. They're a huge brand name within the fintech space. And, uh, you know, we actually started working on a product in 2019 uh, that was largely inspired by Plaid products. Uh, we actually described ourselves as the Plaid for KYC in many, uh, in many ways. And in 2021, uh, they approached us and said, hey, you know, we're looking to potentially expand out into identity here, uh, which is something I had heard rumblings about before. And, you know, we think you guys would potentially be a great partner. So we went down the partnership rabbit hole. And, you know, long story short, we realized that there was a lot of stuff that made sense together rather than as two separate companies working on a partnership. Um, and, you know, fast forward to now, we released the joint product uh, in June or July of last year. Uh, we have added over 200 new customers to this Plaid IDV product. Uh, and uh, here's a here's a new stat that I really like. It's uh, one in three new customers that Plaid signs uh, in Q4 were actually also buying IDV. Uh, so it's a huge, huge rate of people also including uh, that KYC as part of that account linking buying process, which makes sense because 90% of Plaid customers need KYC. So it's a huge, huge overlap. And um, yeah, the traction has been great so far. And that that also makes a ton of sense just from a 
like logistical standpoint. I mean, I, you know, I realized that, that fintechs tend to be <laughs> quite a bit faster in their contracting and in vendor management processes, but I can testify from my one time working at a bank, uh, the pain of dealing with onboarding a new vendor, it could take over a year um, to navigate that vendor management, you know, vendor due diligence process. And so, it, you know, in a scenario like this, if it's like, okay, well, you know, we definitely need Plaid because we need, you know, the account linking transaction capability. Oh, they also do IDV. And this means I can get, you know, these two things for the price of one <laughs> tedious vendor onboarding process. Great. And I think that, you know, some people who may be less familiar with the mechanics, again, particularly at, at larger banks, you know, aren't aware of that sort of hidden hidden cost, I guess you could say, of like, okay, do you want to go out and get two, three, four, five, six different vendors? Or are you willing to take, you know, one or two vendors, potentially even if the quality is slightly lower, and I'm not saying that's the case here, um, just because it speeds up the ability to get those deals done. And, and I think that is like a very real thing. Yeah, the, the fact that you know, Plaid is already through the procurement process of so many big financial institutions in the U.S. has accelerated that deal cycle very, very considerably. And, you know, what we're seeing is that a lot of uh, larger fintechs who previously didn't have the capacity to experiment with new KYC methods or new anti-fraud methods are now much more willing to do so because of that reduced barrier to entry to actually get it integrated um, and get it on board. So I'm I'm curious that that deal, if memory is serving me right, was like early 2021. It was the uh, it was January. Oh, today's the one year anniversary. So okay, 2022. Exactly, exactly, exactly one year ago today. Uh, this is why I should write write things down yeah. in my notes. Okay, so <laughs> you're you're a year on. Um, yeah, a, a lot of has changed in you know the fintech and banking world. Um, in the past year, I mean, particularly when it comes to things like VC funding, you know, some signs of uh, challenges as far as, you know, valuations, some, you know, some failures, some exits, you know, based on sort of having been through that acquisition process, you know, what what do you think the fintech M&A landscape might look like this year, you know, given given your experience and given how things have changed in the in the past exactly 12 months. So I actually think it could potentially be a pretty aggressive year for M&A, but not necessarily the kind of M&A that gets people super excited. So I don't think it's going to be the headliners uh, of multi-billion dollar acquisitions, but there's going to be a lot of consolidation in these smaller players, people who haven't raised as much or who aren't performing as well uh, in the, I'd call it the sub $50 million you know, maybe even sub $30 million range uh, of these acquisitions. Um, so I think we'll see a lot of those. They're not going to be announced very broadly uh, and you're not going to see them in the news, but they're going to be happening behind the scenes. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, overall, I think it's a pretty healthy thing for the industry. There's just a, a huge paralysis of choice, I think, especially within fintech at the moment, because there's just so many of everything. Uh, so a little consolidation doesn't hurt. I think that uh, well, well, we'll have to check back on the uh, two-year anniversary of the acquisition and, and see how your prediction um, pans out. 
I mean, you already spoke to this a little bit as far as how customers use the two capabilities together, right? So like I use the phrase IDV, which I think I also heard you use, but, you know, ID verification, KYC, et cetera, you know, alongside of what, you know, listeners I'm sure know and love about Plaid's core capabilities. I mean, can you sort of expand on that a little bit? I mean, what have you seen, you know, to the extent that you can share in sort of a general way of how either, you know, existing customers of Plaid who then added IDV, like how how they're using those two um, services together to build and offer products or for, you know, net new customers who onboard both of those capabilities at the same time, you know, what kind of, what kinds of things are they building, whether consumer facing or whether it's more behind the scenes services that, that are using those offerings? Uh, so I think from a use case perspective, account funding is one of the most popular. So it's people who, you know, go to a brokerage account, they open a new brokerage account and they want to fund it from their bank account. How can you, first of all, you know, make sure that the person is who they claim they are for compliance purposes, uh, but then also actually reduce that ongoing risk and then subsequently uh, fund that account. And they, they do that by chaining together a few of our products. So at the first stage, there's Plaid ID verification. We make sure that the user is who they, uh, you know, actually claim to be. And then people tend to uh, use Plaid Auth, uh, which is essentially the product that lets you connect that bank account to make sure that, uh, you know, it is my bank account. And you can use Plaid Identity uh, to then check the ownership details, uh, you know, the name, phone number, address on that bank account to make sure that it matches the data provided at that KYC step uh, with Plaid ID verification. Uh, and then once you've actually funded the accounts, uh, people top it off with Plaid Signal, uh, which allows you to uh, analyze uh, the transaction to see what the potential return risk is of that ACH. So, you know, is this person going to maybe have insufficient funds in their accounts? Uh, are they potentially going to, you know, try to reverse this ACH transaction? Uh, and that's like by far the most common type of use case that we're seeing um, and is, is being pretty successful for customers. You know, I think right now it's still pretty, it's pretty centralized in the fintech uh, space right now. So we're not seeing uh, any crazy use cases that I think you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't previously anticipate, but that's definitely the most popular one. And that, again, makes a lot of sense, particularly given the kinds of challenges we've seen come to the forefront in you know, the last 18, 24 months. Uh, particularly linked to some, you know, pandemic relief kinds of programs. Uh, I was actually just listening to an NPR podcast today about PPP, which is still still apparently a news topic. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea that you know you can use some of these capabilities together to screen and mitigate that that fraud risk, whether it's somebody trying to you know, run a scam on unemployment insurance or stimulus checks, um, you know, or the more like garden variety frauds we've seen people do with Zelle, with Cash App, with Venmo. Um, I mean, from from everyone, you know, I have talked to, continue to talk to sort of across the industry, you know, this feels like a very high priority for, you know, for 2023 to sort of figure out like, how do you get a handle on what is at least feels like is perceived to be like an accelerating problem and certainly one, you know, that not only hurts 
um, you know, institutions that potentially have liability, you know, depending on how the fraud occurred, but also consumers. And, and as a uh, as a victim of identity theft myself, it's like sorting that stuff out. Um, you know, even if you don't end up with financial liability, uh, is certainly uh, a pain and a, a time consuming task. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's just really I struggle with in the U.S. is how the liability for identity fraud tends to just be on that consumer rather than on the business who actually leaked your data. Uh, I mean, it's what do you do? What do you do at that point? Once your business, when, uh, once your PII is out there, uh, which basically everybody's is at this point, uh, there's just very little recourse to actually being able to protect yourself afterwards. So I, I feel that for sure. Yeah, it, it, I was poking around recently in, uh, I think it was in Credit Karma and like somewhere buried in their service, there's like a basically like data breach detector. And I'm like, oh, yep. wow, like my, my information has been out there a lot of times. Um, yeah. so it's not too surprising somebody opened up a, a bunch of bank accounts in my name. Yeah, um, it's so common actually that people's data leaking is so common that we actually use it as a negative indicator in our anti-fraud models if we don't see you in breach data. So it means that it's probably a synthetic or a fake identity if you haven't ever been in a breach, uh, which is kind of an uh, upsetting, but, uh, you know, reality of, of our condition right now. I mean, a, a little sad, but I, I, I suppose it, it makes sense. Um, I mean, as I think we talked about uh, before the show, like most of my operational experience with identity um has been through the lens of lending, right? Which even compared to to opening, you know, opening a brokerage account or opening a bank account, when you're lending people money, even if it's relatively small amounts, uh, the level of scrutiny tends to be, I would argue, like orders of magnitude higher because the the risk of loss and the damage of of that financial loss tends to be far greater, right? If somebody opens up a bogus bank account, you know, yes, there are, you know, there are things they can do where the bank would end up losing money. Um, but if you're lending somebody, you know, 10 grand, 15 grand, you, know, you tend to have a more thorough approach to doing identity verification. Um, but there are all sorts of other use cases for identity verification, you know, outside of lending or even outside of sort of the core financial services stuff that I spend most of my time thinking about and that most people tend to associate Plaid with. Um, for instance, age-gated products uh, like gambling or alcohol. Um, and I can't say that I'm you know, particularly enthusiastic that online sports betting is apparently now a huge thing in the U.S., um, I read some very like kind of sad article about uh, how desperate colleges are for money and selling the rights, selling the ad rights on you know stadiums or sports jerseys or whatever to various sports betting companies. That's a product that in, I believe, most all states is either 18 or maybe 21. Uh, but again, you know, just like uh, applying for a loan or opening a bank account, you know, you need to verify that somebody actually is the person or more importantly, is the age that they say that they are. Um, does Plaid's, you know, identity uh, capabilities, do you have any customers sort of outside of the financial services realm? Or is that something that, that uh, the company is pursuing? Uh, we do, we do. Uh, I would say the majority of the customers right now are fintech, uh, a large portion of them uh, being in crypto. You know, that's where we kind of got our, uh, that's where we kind of laid our roots. And 
something I typically say to people is like, if you can solve fraud in crypto, then you can solve fraud in basically any industry uh, because the absolute biggest financial incentives for a lot of fraudsters are in the crypto space. So most of the resources for learning how to defraud businesses are going to the crypto space, Mm -hmm. right? Because if you're able to get that crypto out, then it's also an immutable ledger. So uh, you can't reverse that transaction. So it just makes a lot of sense for them to try to get that money. Um, so anyway, we we really focused on crypto and that's uh, worked out quite well for us. Uh, but that being said, you know, we do care a lot about those trust and safety use cases as well. We have a handful of use cases that I think are really cool that we never even pitched to, but they just kind of, uh, uh, you know, unfolded that way. One is a large social network uh, that wants to make sure that you live in a certain neighborhood so that you can be part of that sort of trusted community. That's a super interesting one. Um, I wouldn't have previously thought of that. Uh, and then uh, a more recent one to that that I thought was really cool that started in the pandemic or started becoming popular in the pandemic was remote library card issuance. So instead of having to <laughs> physically, yeah, yeah. So it, you would think like, why, why do you care about having a remote library card? It's because if you have a remote library card, there's now services where you can then prove that you're part of X library. And so you're able to rent eBooks uh, and podcast or not podcasts, uh, eBooks and, uh, you know, the audiobooks and all of that stuff for free without actually paying any marginal amount per book um, if you have that library card. So they issue you a remote library card and then you get that free content. Uh, so it's really actually pretty cool. Uh a fun fun fact that I don't think I've ever mentioned uh, on a podcast or, or in my newsletter. My first real job was working at my local library. Uh, and yes, they did want to verify that you like lived in the district. Now, their way of doing yeah. that, and I'm not going to say how long ago it was, but I was in high school. <laughs> uh, there was like a binder of like addresses and like the address on your driver's license or ID needed to match the binder of addresses if you wanted to get... Uh, a library card in that district. So yeah, that, that use case um, hits close to home. <laughs> That's a little scary that that was just, that binder was just sitting in someone's uh, filing cabinet for 20 years or however long, oh. uh, a, little, a little spooky, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm curious uh, to hear your perspective on the challenges of verifying users' identities in an online context, right? And I think so much of the experience of a typical consumer you know, at least the sort of onboarding experiences I've had, and I've, I've tested a lot of products, you know, tends to be type in your name, address, date of birth, maybe SSN into a form, um, and then probably, you know, take a photo of your driver's license front, probably back, and then maybe take some kind of selfie, um, you know, is that how Cognito generally works? Um, and what are the what are the pitfalls in that process? How can it be improved? I, I'm just curious to hear, like, from somebody who's infinitely more expert than I am at this, you know, how you think about it. Yeah, so uh, I guess I can just talk about it in the context of what we're actually working on yeah. uh, for the Plaid ID verification product, because, of course, we're trying to essentially address that issue. So... Um, you know, when you're talking about verifying identity online, one of the core issues that you have is that you can't actually trust any of the devices that are trying to verify their identity, right? So if you're looking at something like a video feed or an audio feed, someone's doing their biometric verification or passport verification, 
because we don't control the user's end devices, they can manipulate those camera feeds. They can essentially pump whatever they want to us because they control the actual underlying device. So in an online context, it's just very, very easy to fake basically every part of that verification process. So how can you extract as many signals as you possibly can from what the user is giving you to make sure, you know, does this look anomalous in any way, shape or form? Is this person manipulating the data that they're giving to us, whether it's, you know, PII uh, and they're, they've created a synthetic identity with the credit bureaus or, you know, they're trying to pump us deep fakes uh, via the biometric selfies. So anywhere along that line, you need to just be trying to sniff out uh, little inconsistencies, not just in the individual checks like the PII checks, but also the inconsistencies between those checks. Uh, and a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of information to be ascertained by, uh, uh, you know, the the white space between those checks. So, you know, one thing, for instance, that we find really interesting is how you can leverage data points outside of just the ID verification stage to improve the ID verification stage. So what do I mean by that? Uh, for instance, like, you know, we have uh, wonderful access to the Plaid Identity product, uh, which allows us to connect that bank account linked data that, that the PII that's on your bank account to then make sure that this person who's verifying is actually uh, the person whose bank account that is. And that type of check alone can actually thwart a whole bunch because frequently people use, say, a stolen bank account, but then they mismatch it with stolen identity information they bought on the dark web and it doesn't match together. So that's a super concrete example. But there's many, many, many of these, and our job is largely to find all of those potential discrepancies and try to surface those uh, to the end user. Um, I think also just from a UX perspective, you know, for ID verification, people are very used to signing up for services with less and less friction. But what you end up seeing because of increasing regulatory scrutiny and then also increasing needs for anti-fraud is that that friction is actually just slowly increasing, right? The biometric selfie component was actually, I, I would say, uh, mainly started to become popular in the market in the last three or four years. Before that, it just didn't really exist. Uh, and crypto companies were actually the ones to push it forward. Uh, it was not anybody else. Now it seems to be a mainstay for basically everyone, but crypto companies were the ones to push the envelope there uh, and kind of roll it out uh, uh, en masse there. And, uh, you know, in a recent survey that Plaid uh, conducted uh, with Harris Poll, we saw that 70% of users feel more secure using apps that ask them to verify identities. So we're seeing now this shift where if you actually verify identities, people are going to be more interested in potentially using your app. But there's a limit to that, right? You can't just keep pumping up the friction and increasing the security because at a certain point, people are going to give up. So in, a, in an online context, you really need to try to balance that friction profile with the risk profile so that people still wants to go through your verification process um, without, uh, you know, abandoning uh, because it's just way too much for them. That's interesting. I mean, another uh, potential or presumed trade-off as you ask for more pieces of information or more, you know, more ways of verifying ID, um, you know, are for a, you know, small but, but meaningful population of people who like may not be able to provide those credentials, Right. I mean, my my favorite uh, version of this story is, you know, when I moved to London, oh, I didn't have an address because I was looking for 
a flat. Uh, so I couldn't open a bank account because I didn't have an address. Uh, but then I couldn't get an apartment because I didn't have a bank account. I also couldn't get a cell phone because I didn't have any credit record. So it's like, you know, again, not, you know, certainly not a majority of people, but it does um, potentially increase the challenges for, you know, already vulnerable populations, immigrants, unhoused people, et cetera. Um, and I, you know, unfortunately, I don't typically hear a lot of that discussion, you know, at the at the public policy level of like, okay, I think everyone, you know, generally is in agreement that we want to prevent money laundering and, you know, financial crime and like funding terrorists. But as you ratchet up some of these uh, verification techniques, you know, there can be un unintended consequences. So, I mean, hopefully we see that um, worked into some of the you know, discussion points around how these technologies move forward. I mean, one one area that we have seen some innovation in, uh, which I also have mixed feelings about <laughs> in, in the last couple of years, um, are in things like mobile driver's licenses. Uh, so I've covered a couple of bits of news, particularly around Apple's push in the space. Uh, and I'm sure you're familiar, but for, for listeners who might not be, around taking your you know, state-issued driver's license, which in the United States is the most common uh, identity credential, uh, and actually creating a digital version of that that lives in your Apple wallet. You know, it's still early days here. There's only a handful of states actually doing it. Um, as far as I'm aware, the only sort of like real use case is at a handful of TSA checkpoints uh, at a number of airports um, but you can sort of see the trajectory of of where that could go, uh, particularly if you're as as nerdy as I am and have like dug into Apple's patent filings and see some of the potential applications around things like KYC for opening financial accounts. So I mean, from where from where you sit in the ecosystem, you know, when you look at something like mobile driver's licenses, you know, or or other sort of call them novel or emerging identity. Uh, technologies, what sort of opportunities and, and risks do you see? Uh, so first of all, I'm very excited about mobile driver's licenses. Uh, there are obviously risks, but overall, I think that it's going to be a great thing for the industry and is something that I think a lot of private industry has been calling for for quite a while, uh, which is a little bit more of a robust government-based verification system uh, because it's just been so heavily in the hands of private industry uh, up until this point. And uh, so I think on the opportunity side, one of the clear ones is a user is the user experience. So just like how Apple Pay made it ridiculously easy to check out, this is going to make it ridiculously easy to verify your identity. Uh, that being said, it's not going to be every component of ID verification, right? You still need to collect those social security numbers from people, don't need to verify all of that stuff, but it's going to it's going to take the place of, you know, the the relatively manual process right now of taking pictures of driver's licenses. Uh, and so this is an undoubted improvement over that. Um, on top of that, I guess there's increased identity assurance. So it's just much easier to know that that cryptographically signed driver's license from the DMV is uh, much more real than the random picture that some person took uh, on their iPhone. Uh which means better security in general. Um, 
And then I think another big uh, understated benefit here is that it's going to reduce the, uh, the grip that credit bureaus have on identity in the United States right now. So that's just something that I feel like everybody complains about uh, the fact that, you know, Equifax breached my data that, you know, uh, someone can steal your identity and then you have no recourse whatsoever because it's control- It's essentially controlled by the bureaus. So I think that's going to be a really, really important shift over the next decade is it won't be the most important central repository of your identity information uh, in the United States anymore. Uh, on the risk side, I think it's largely more on the political side that those risks exist because from a technical perspective, it's undoubtedly better. Uh, increased surveillance is a possibility, right? If you now have a central government uh, database of all of the places you've used to verify your identity, rather than that being uh, sort of stored within private companies, that could potentially be an issue depending on your stance there. Uh, as you alluded to, difficulties for undocumented immigrants is going to be pretty big, actually. If everyone is using these cryptographically signed uh, you know, mobile driver's licenses, it's going to be very, very hard to fake your ID. So for undocumented immigrants signing up for services, uh, you know, that's just that's just kind of a reality of the world that we live in. Like undocumented immigrants do sign up for these services. They do get around uh, today's systems. And it's going to be way harder to do that with mobile driver's licenses other than, you know, having second party fraud where uh, sort of like a documented immigrant or a documented person in the U.S. Uh, gives uh, their you know, iPhone to someone else to be able to to verify their identity with it, uh, which is possible. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm most worried about, I don't think this will happen because of the likes of Apple and Google leading the helm, but there could be worse fragmentation requiring people to have a whole bunch of different apps to verify their identity, which I think would be a huge bummer. Like if, you know, in Arizona, if they came out with a, a state's driver's license app that you had to download, which we, we're actually starting to see a little bit of, um, and every different state has their own little app that maybe has slightly different support for the protocol. And then now it's an issue for businesses because they can't just integrate one ID verification vendor. They need to integrate, you know, 50 plus uh, different state level protocols. Uh, that would be that would be a huge bummer. Um, but then you could but, build yeah. a, a service that aggregates those 50 uh, state IDs. <laughs> it's true. It, it's true. There you go. It never ends. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. There are some you know, there are some benefits to having companies like Apple and Google sort of lead that charge. I mean, I'm uh, perhaps naturally like a little bit skeptical. I mean, obviously Apple has, you know, specific commercial intent and and accountability to its shareholders. But to your point, um, you know, thinking about, well, realistically, you know, what is the alternative, right? So, I mean, um, I'm not going to pretend that I'm particularly knowledgeable about uh, India's Aadhaar system. Like, do I think something like that could ever, particularly in the current climate, ever work in the United States? Like, no, absolutely not. Um, I mean, here in the in the Netherlands, we have a sort of more limited version of it um, called DigiD, which is pretty much limited to serving as your credential for any government related services. Um, there's some limited other applications around like private healthcare and, and medical records and stuff, but it, it's, it's fairly small in scale. 
Um, so I do, I do think you make a good point of like, well, if the alternative is 50 individual state systems, you know, that also comes with cost and complication. And, and as anyone um, who's worked in like a consumer facing fintech can tell you like state by state licensing is a huge pain, um, you know, arguably a barrier to innovation, uh, huge overhead as far as like legal and compliance and, you know, managing whether it's, you know, MSB, like money transmittal licenses, lending licenses, um, you know, it, it, it it's a barrier to getting to market and, you know, sucks up resources. Um, I mean, I'm curious, you know, if, if government is probably not, you know, going to have a consumer facing app, which, which in the U S I don't think that's going to happen um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, you know, we've heard a lot of chatter from sort of like crypto DeFi world, which, you sound like you may, may be more familiar with than I am um, as far as the idea of having some sort of decentralized identity. You know, I also hear the term self-sovereign thrown around a lot. And I, I will admit that I don't entirely understand what that means. Um, I mean, I'm curious if you have any experience or point of view. I mean, obviously, you know, Plaid is a centralized, you know, for-profit company, uh, but from being familiar with the space, I mean, have you seen anything interesting or realistic or potentially, um, I wouldn't even say commercializable, but like anything that potentially could be like production ready uh, coming out of this sort of decentralized movement when it comes to identity? Uh, so I am actually a huge proponent of decentralized identity. I think it it is extremely cool but unfortunately uh, for the time being it is too pure of a vision of identity for the messy and complex real world systems that we have today so in the united states digital credentials aren't actually that valuable and that's because the rules and regs right now for things like kyc require each individual financial institution to collect information from that end user and conduct their own checks. The liability is, you can't push the liability, you know, uh, you know, if a big bank verifies my identity and then I'm a small FinTech, I can't just say, hey, big bank verified your identity, therefore it's fine by me. It doesn't matter how good that other verifier was, you can't reuse that credential in the US and have that be a legally permissible KYC. So, the best bet right now for those kinds of decentralized credentials are a big financial institution verifies someone's identity, they issue a credential, and then that credential can be used for trust and safety use cases. So uh, the use cases you were alluding to before can be used for age verification. It can be used for, um, uh, you know, like the library use case I was talking about, the social network use case I was talking about. So there is some portability that I expect could potentially happen in the credential side, but the value of a digital credential is severely diminished as a result of um, uh, as a result of their uh, not being a uh, you know legally permissible way for you to actually use it again, uh, which is a bummer. That being said, I think that the the tech on the decentralized identity is super cool. Um, there's now I don't know if you saw this, but at some point last year, uh, the W three C, which is that global sort of standards body 
finally codified the initial set of uh, credentials uh, for a whole bunch of different uh, use cases. So now there is a worldwide standard for issuing and uh, you know formatting these credentials, which is an important first step for that dream uh, that is eventually having a more unified identity system across the world. Um, but that being said, there's currently one major challenge that digital identity shares that cryptocurrency does as well, which is that in order to have a self-sovereign self identity, like you're talking about, and for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what the concept of self-sovereign identity is, the idea is that instead of having some third party, you know, like Google, you log in with Google every day on different services, you just hit that sign in with Google, that's not a self-sovereign identity because Google uh, controls the actual underlying identity system. But with decentralized identity, the promise is that you hold a private key, which is essentially like a password for your digital life on your device. And no one else knows what that password is. So even if, you know, a government wanted to delete your identity, they couldn't because you control that identity 100%. That password exists on your device. And cryptocurrency and identity share this exact same problem where it turns out it's actually very difficult to get people to want to store their own password. Because if you lose that password, you lose access to your money with cryptocurrency. So they'd rather say, hey, Coinbase, could you please store my password for me? And then I don't need to worry about, uh, you know, potentially losing it, someone stealing it from me, anything like that. But then it's basically like traditional financial services. Bank of America holds my money. Coinbase holds my money. What's the difference? It doesn't matter what's backing it. Um, digital identity has a very similar problem where in order to have that decentralized identity on your phone, you need to store that password. If you, if you lose that password and you're using it for a lot of important stuff, like, you know, you're voting with that decentralized identity, you're getting social services with that decentralized identity. It's the key to you logging into all of your websites. You know, that's a huge problem. So those two spaces kind of need to figure that out before anything can happen. And I think the best bet here is for the platform holders like Apple, Google, Samsung, to build that into their phones so that people don't need to, uh, you know, download all these different apps for handling it and they can help improve the underlying security model of it. Um, because right now I think it's just way too stressful for anyone to feasibly uh, adopt. And then you just need to not lose your phone. Otherwise you're going to lose your yeah. uh, <laughs> entire, your exactly. entire identity, your whole life. And um, all your money. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Alan, thank you so much. We're going to have to check in in a year and see if uh, I can get a self-sovereign identity and, and open a bank account with it. Where can listeners keep up with the latest on what Plaid is building in the identity space? Yes. Uh, great question. We've got a lot of awesome stuff coming. So I hope that people do follow along. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can uh, go to at Plaid uh, on Twitter and follow along there. Or you can just uh, you know check out Plaid.com and see all of our new identity products and some super cool stuff in the pipe that we look forward to releasing later this year. Amazing. Thank you so much for the time. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. Mm -hmm.